Hello and welcome to the Destiny Church Podcast. We pray that as you listen to this message, it helps you grow closer to God and inspires you to live like Jesus. Thanks for listening. Here's the message. But today we start week two of a series titled Little Foxes. And the key scripture that we've taken to sort of build upon the entirety of the series is found in Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse 15. And it says this, catch all the foxes, those little foxes before they ruin the vineyard of love for the grapevines are blossoming. Catch the foxes, all the little foxes before they ruin the vineyard of love for the grapevines are blossoming. Song of Solomon, uh, also known as Song of Songs, is an Old Testament lyric poem. And it's about a young couple who's getting married. And there is a little mystery around this book in terms of what exactly is its purpose? What exactly was it intended for? Because as we look at the context of the book, we see that human love is definitely a primary issue in the text but there's strangely very little mention of God and its structure doesn't necessarily suggest that it's an allegorical text, um, but there's definitely some foreshadowing of Christ and his relationship with the church. And so um, I'm studying, I'm using commentaries, trying to figure out what exactly does this thing mean and uh, have really just come to the place where I think it's didactic in the sense that it teaches us about marriage and human love and the stewardship of our passion, but there is also a prophetic message within the text, a foreshadowing of Christ's union with his church. And so I think that's a safe interpretation of the text. And if that is a true interpretation of the text, then it broadens the meaning of this verse found in uh, Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse 15 catch the little foxes in the sense that the little foxes need to be caught because they ruin the vineyards of love. I think this language is, there's imagery here. There's symbolism being used in this verse. And it's that the vineyards of love are our earthly relationships, but also our relationship with Jesus. And then the little foxes represent little sins that cause large problems if undealt with. I did a little research and found foxes wreak havoc on, in vineyards. And so they'll gnaw on vines to reach, uh, out to, to obtain out of reach fruit, or they'll burrow in the root system, disrupting the root system so the plants can no longer grow as they create their dens. And in the same way, little foxes can wreak havoc in vineyards, literally, if in the same way little sins can wreak havoc on the quality and intimacy of our relationships, our vineyards of love, if left undealt with. James 1, 14, 15 says it like this. Um, Temptation comes from our own desires. So we know that before we ever see behavior, we see belief, right? Belief always precedes behavior. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away because sin's intention has always been to separate us from God. So we see it drags us away. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. But here's the key. When sin is allowed to grow, When sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. 
Listen, I I always want to be careful anytime I'm preaching a message or I'm uh, stewarding a a series on sin because I don't want you to leave here with the thought of now I got to be perfect so God will love me. God loves you, okay? But there's a difference between stumbling, we're going to sin, we're going to fall short, but there's a difference between stumbling versus being mastered by something. Sin, we can allow it to grow and it can manifest. We talked last week, Satan starts subtle but has intentions to make us a slave, right? So this series isn't a call to perfection, it's a call to protection, to identify it, to protect our relationships, the intimacy, the quality of our earthly relationships, but also our relationships With him, this series is intended to heighten our awareness so we can recognize and catch little foxes, little sins the enemy is wanting to use to bring death to our relationships. We discovered in Matthew 22 last week, if you didn't listen, if you hadn't heard last week's message, I wanna encourage you to go to our podcast, listen to week one. It kind of lays the foundation for the coming weeks. But we see in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, what's the most important law? What's the most important commandment? Keep in mind, there's 613. What's the most important one? He says to love God and to love people. This is what Christ cares about most. In fact, this is what even some of his commands, they revolve around our relationship with him and our relationship with others. What does he want us to do most? To love him and to love people. So if our enemy is in direct opposition to the things that God's calling us uh, to be a part of, then you better believe that he wants to hinder and disrupt our relationships with God, but also our relationships with others. Amen? So last week, we we laid the foundation. In the coming weeks, we'll address specific little foxes. uh, And and I'm just gonna believe the Lord to give us freedom, to give us healing, to give us restoration in our vineyards of love. Do you have faith for that? Okay, so... um, Our key scripture for this morning is actually found in Luke 7, but I want to do a little bit of setup before I jump in to Luke 7. I I want to take time to make sure we have a good understanding because I think it'll maximize the revelation that we see in the verse if we have a better understanding of what's going on around it. So we see John the Baptist here. He's in prison at at, at this point in the scripture. But John the Baptist is a pretty significant figure in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels. One of the articles I was reading as I studied this week said behind Jesus, he probably is the most significant figure in the Gospels. I thought that was a pretty bold claim, but his birth is meticulously recorded. He came into the world with divine intervention. His mother couldn't conceive, but there's a blessing from a priest that happens at the synagogue. Uh, He comes with angelic proclamation proclamation. Angels are involved with him coming into earth. And something many of us fail to recognize is that John was a transitional prophetic figure. Up until John, there's been 400 years of prophetic silence. That's the gap we have between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Isaiah had prophesied though, there would be a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Messiah. And so John the Baptist is this voice in the wilderness is what we discover as we go through the text. He's a a herald for the coming of Christ. His primary message is repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is near. The Old Testament prophesied that Elijah would return before the anointed one returned. And in Matthew 17, Jesus himself says, you knew that the, that the text prophesied that Elijah would come before Christ and Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist. So I don't really understand all that, but we just know John the Baptist fulfills the prophecy about Elijah, not in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense, because Jesus told us he did. And that's good enough for me. Amen? So John the Baptist is significant. His ministry is so powerful. It's so effective. He's making such a great impact. He has to clarify with believers. He says, I'm not the Messiah. There's someone coming who's even greater than me. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. But we know that John is going to be one of the first people to recognize Jesus as the anointed one. It'll be John who sees Jesus across the way and says, look, the Lamb of God. John recognized him. He's the herald. He has great clarity. He baptizes Jesus. The heavens open up and a voice shouts, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And John is a part of that, right? He has great clarity. And we have to catch this before I read the verse. He has great clarity. Everyone say clarity. He knows, he receives the divine revelation. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. This is the one that all the Jews have been waiting for. But as time went on, John, for his beliefs, for his convictions, he's getting persecuted. And because of these things, he ends up in a prison cell. And you can see the once so confident John the Baptist doesn't necessarily seem so confident anymore. So as we approach Luke 7, we see at this point in time, John the Baptist is in a prison cell. Jesus' earthly public ministry is taking place. He's healing blind eyes. He's healing sickness. He's healing deaf ears. He's even bringing the dead back to life. You'll see it earlier in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Luke 7. He's fulfilling what Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. All of these things are literally present in the ministry of Jesus. He's the anointed one. It's clear as day. All of these things are present. So there's a little background. Let, let's go to Luke 7 here and, and then we'll pray. I know that's a long entry, but I, I, think it'll, I think it was necessary. Luke 7, verse 18. The disciples of John, so remember John has his own disciples, guys who follow him around, guys he's raising up in the faith. So the disciples of John reported all these things to him, all the things Jesus had been doing. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one to come or should we look for another? What are you frustrated, John? What's going on? I, th I thought you knew Jesus was the one. Now you got questions. Is he the one or not? Verse 20. And when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, hey, John the Baptist sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, 
Y'all go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard because Jesus knows that John will know the scriptures in Isaiah that say he'll heal blind eyes, he'll open deaf ears, right? He'll heal the sick. So he says, go and tell John what you have seen and what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And then verse 23, this is, this is it right here. And blessed, Jesus wants his, John's disciples to tell John this, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Everyone say offended. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray. And then I'll unpack this for the rest of our time together. Jesus, we love you so much. We invite your spirit and your presence into this place, specifically into our hearts, till the soil of our heart, help it be fertile ground to receive the seed of your word. Let transformation take place in this room this morning. Transform us into a company of kingdom people. Uh, we don't wanna just hear your word. We wanna live it out and empower us to do so. And I pray this church would continue to foster kids in Jesus' name, amen. Tom Brady is a better quarterback than Patrick Mahomes. Why are y'all so offended? Man, America, we're so easily offended. Look, some of y'all wanna walk out right now. We got baptisms. We're gonna celebrate salvation and y'all wanna leave because you're offended. It's just the truth, man. Look at the stats. Listen, I don't even hate Patrick Mahomes. Isn't that offense? Offense, we're always offended. How dare you? I'm offended. It's like, anyone ever been offended? Yeah, you have. You just were. I heard it. <laughs> right? While I was preparing this message this week, I thought of a very specific time that I myself got offended because we've all been offended, right? And, and I'm willing, you know, for the sake of uh, the powerful and effective teaching of the gospel, I'm willing to relive the trauma. It, it, why y'all laughing? First thing I ever learned how to cook was eggs. Okay. My mom would often make us sunny side up eggs. My dad would make me scrambled eggs before my football games, before my peewee football games. Remember he used to tell me, this is what the Buckeyes are eating. We lived in Ohio and that got me riled up and man, Buckeyes never came asking for me to play for them. So blame it on the eggs, blame it on the eggs. Vanzi University was the best we could do. That's all right. So, uh, but my mom taught me how to make sunny side up eggs and those were specifically easy because you just had to crack them and let them cook. And personally, still to this day, I like to eat my eggs sunny side up because now you have this yolk and then I can toast my bread and put some butter on it and then I can dip my toast in my eggs and eat it. And I think it tastes great. Now, every time I go to Grillo's here in town, I order my eggs sunny side up. I ask for toast and my waitress brings them. And every single time it's one specific waitress, he says, that's disgusting. That offends me. <laughs> All right. Nobody asked you. 15% on the tip now. Instead of 20, I'm sick of it. And that's not even my story about being offended and I'm already offended. Mom taught me how to cook sunny side up eggs. And uh, once I learned, I started making them all the time. 
I'm like, let's go. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, there was something empowering about being able to provide for myself, to cook for myself. Maybe I'm seventh grade, sixth grade, fourth, fifth grade. I don't know. But I just, I don't know, there's a new sense of manlyhood that I'm living in now, a new dimension of manhood that I've stepped into. I know how to cook. If the plague kills my whole family and I got to provide for little sister, we going to eat because I can make eggs, okay? We going to be all right. He's going to bring us through. So I, uh, you know, there's this sense of accomplishment that comes from being able to uh, make my own eggs. And so I'm, I'm excited. It's a big deal. I can make my own eggs. It's about six o'clock one night and uh, being the tender-hearted, kind, loving son, <laughs> thoughtful son that I am, I decided I feel like cooking eggs. And uh, you know who I think could use some sunny side up eggs right now? None other than my mom who taught me. I want to I wanna bless her. I, uh, but these weren't just going to be any regular old sunny side up eggs. I had a heart-shaped cookie cutter and so I was going to take these sunny side up eggs and I was going to cut them into hearts and then bring them on a plate. And so I remember I cooked these sunny side up eggs. I, I trim them. I don't know if I ate the extras or threw them away, but these hearts are, these hearts are perfect. And so I'm bringing, there's a long hallway leading down to their room and I'm, and I'm like, oh, should I stop into the bathroom and get tissues? Cause she might weep. This is, this is, woo, these things look good. So I bring them into the room. I'm, I'm full of anticipation. I'm full of expectation. This is going to be a moment. And I bring the eggs up to her bedside. She's laying in bed. I say, Mom, I made you these eggs. I made you these eggs. And she looks at me and she says, I'm okay right now, sweetie. You go ahead and eat them. What do you mean? You eat them. Talk about offended. Anybody ever been offended? In all seriousness, man, see, here's where I try to get serious and it's like, got to wait five minutes for y'all to catch up. But I, I, I don't know if we've ever been more easily offended as a nation as we are right now. Offense, offense. We're always offended. Being offended, it's, it's like a, a part of our culture in America right now. I'm not just talking about the tension between the far right and the far left and, and everything in between. It's the cancel culture. It's, it's everything that's going on. And I'm not saying that we're never um, justified to not feel offended, but I think in some ways being offended in our world is like a new trend right now. Like there's this, there's this voice of culture saying, is culture screaming at us, you should be offended. That's offensive. Let them know. Block them. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes I find myself even in conversation or I'm preaching on a stage where a lot of people are listening to what I'm saying. And I'm like, is what I'm saying offensive right now? I don't even I don't know. I'm probably saying something offensive. There, there, there's this heightened sensitivity in this day and age and, and sort of this subconscious wrestle like, is that okay? Is that not okay? And, and I don't think all of that is bad because I, I think, you know, we're, we're human and at times we need reform. But as Jesus followers in a day and age where offense is socially accepted, I would even go as far to say as it's encouraged to carry around. We can't forget what the scriptures have spoken to us about offense. 
offense, the truth that we know about how to deal with and steward offense and how we're supposed to deal with it. Honestly, we're, we're talking about little foxes that can ruin the vineyards of love. And I just believe that one of the things that will wreak havoc in our vineyards of love is living, walking, breathing with an offended heart. With an offended heart. So I just want to unpack a couple of scriptures that talk about this whole idea of being offended and how we're supposed to deal, properly deal with offense as Jesus followers, as we use his word to minister to our offended hearts. Amen. Proverbs eighteen nineteen says, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Fortified city is a city with walls around it. An offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. Remember, we're talking about little foxes that primarily hinder our relationship with God and our relationships with others. In Proverbs, it so clearly communicates an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. But here's the problem. I can't make the commitment that in my friendships and in my relationships, I'm just not gonna say anything that might be offensive because I have a calling on my life. Uh, if you're a believer and I'm a believer, iron sharpens iron. So I have a calling, uh, a mandate on my life is I have to share not only grace, but I have to share truth. And if I don't share truth, then you don't get free. And sometimes truth is offensive. That don't mean it's wrong. It just, sometimes it's hard to take. It's, a, it's offensive sometimes. So I don't approach this scripture and read this scripture and interpret it in the way of like, yeah, you know, quit being offended. You're being offended and that's going to separate. This isn't the Proverbs are so easy to read and think about other people and point your finger at other people. See what it says. And, and this is, there needs to be something introspective here taking place of if I live with an offended heart, I am building walls. I am becoming a fortified city that is keeping people out. And, and, and what I'm afraid might happen is if we live with an offended heart, then, then the things in us that need out can't get out because we're fortified and truth that needs to get in can't get in that'll actually set us free. It's dangerous to live with an offended heart. It's not so much about not offending others or pointing our finger at the other side to say, quit being so offended, but rather there needs to be some introspective work where we read an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. And, and, and to understand that if I'm gonna live with an offended heart, it's going to hinder my earthly relationships. It's gonna hinder my earthly relationships. So James, I feel like lays out a practical way of how we can avoid getting to that place where we have an offended heart, putting up these walls to separate ourselves. James says it like this, James 1, verse 19 through 20. He said, understand this, my brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, right? Because he gave you two ears and one mouth. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. No crazy revelation here. Just looking at the text, I just want to lay it out. Proverbs speaks to how offense can cause separation in my earthly relationships. But offense, which can very well just be a manifestation of our anger, 
right? That where we see offense and anger, they're almost uh, in some ways synonymous with each other. You don't really have offense without anger sometimes or hurt. So not only does my anger and offense hinder earthly relationships, but as I read James, it says human anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. So my offended heart might actually keep me from stepping into the things God has for me. It might keep me from becoming all that God's shaping and molding me to be. We can see that our offense, our anger hinders our relationship, our intimacy with God. It affects both. Keeps us from the things he has for us. I want to be transparent here. The other night, at this point, I can't even remember what it was. But I was sternly, just verbally, disciplining the girls at bedtime. How many know bedtime's a struggle sometimes, man? Woo! I love my kids till it's time to go to bed and then it's like, oh, Satan entered me or something. Just kidding. I rebuke that. All right. Bedtime. Bedtime can be a wrestle. Bedtime can be frustrating. Um, so I'm in the middle of disciplining the girls trying to shut down whatever disrespectful behavior is taking place or whatever it is. And, and in the middle of me getting on to the girls, trying to set the tone and, and cut all the crap out of them, Abigail says something along the lines of, in the middle of, of me disciplining these girls, Abigail's, Mark, don't be so harsh with the girls. In front of them. I'm like, you're undermining me, woman. How are they going to respect me if you're, if, you're, if you're doing all that? What is that? Why do you do that? You always do that. Talk about offended. You're offending me. This conversation is happening in front of the girls and trying to lay down the law, just being transparent. It's the first time in a while where I feel like I just got angry. Come on, can your pastor be imperfect? Yeah, and I'm just, and I just gave into my flesh and snapped on Abigail a little bit and wasn't trying to hear what she had to say. And I was offended and angry because I felt undermined and like she, and she keeps correcting me and I'm trying to shut her down. And this is so embarrassing to admit, but I'm like trying to like win this argument here. And I remember I'm standing at the microwave and she's like over at the kitchen table and I'm like, I'm just going to ignore you for 20 seconds. Okay. I promise I normally handle arguments more mature and patiently than this, but I didn't. I had a moment because, because offense causes us to separate right? It, it builds these walls. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to separate. I'm just going to cause some separation here, but you know what? She's not in the room, so I can admit it. If I'm being real honest, she was just sharing the truth, right? And, and how I was acting in the moment wasn't the most fruitful way to shepherd and lead the kids, but I was so angry and offended by her actions in the moment, I wasn't postured to receive the correction because I had an offended heart. Got snappy with her and the kids. And that isn't even, you know, it's not what the Lord wants me, how he wants me living and, and treating these others. And I'm just, you know, I'm thinking I'm justified to be angry and upset because her actions offended me. But, but, but that's the detriment of keeping an angered and offended heart is offense causes us to seek separation. 
right? It causes us to seek separation and offense seems to always forget. The problem with offense is it always seems to forget that I was created by Jesus and for Jesus and people weren't created for me and to fulfill my expectations, right? To live with an offended heart is to be real me-centered, to forget our, forget our purpose, to we forget what we exist for when we're offended. Chances are we're being me-centered. We're not being Christ-centered in our thoughts or in our behaviors. And people weren't created to fulfill our expectations. We get mad at people for not meeting our expectation or our standard. And we're baffled that they would do such a thing or say such a thing. And we fail to recognize that we fall short of that standard and expectation all the time, baby. We need that grace just like they need that grace, right? That people don't just hurt us, but we hurt people. And people don't just lie to us. Sometimes we lie to people. And people don't just reject us. Sometimes we reject people. And to live with an offended heart is a commitment to not distribute the same grace that we receive from our Heavenly Father. Solomon says it so well. He basically says, don't pay attention to everything you hear because you're going to hear something said bad about you. (laughs) Check this out. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7. Don't Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. (laughs) He's just saying, you know, we just hurt each other. We wound each other. We're, we're, We're gonna fall short of God's glory. We're imperfect, right? We have no justification to stay and remain offended. The offense we, uh, we hold, it's unproductive. It wreaks havoc in our relationship with Jesus and with others. And what I'm most concerned with though is not even necessarily our earthly relationships and how offense might hinder those. The offense we've held toward one another, but more so our offense held towards God because of our unmet expectations that are really more about our will for our lives than his will. God, why didn't you, why didn't you stop it? God, why did you let that happen? God, how can you call yourself good? God, how are you gonna let this happen? Th- this is what Jesus wanted to make sure John the Baptist avoided. Here, so I, I wanna revisit our key scripture, Luke 7, it says this, coming to a close here. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples, said, I want you to go ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Because last time I checked, I'm still in this stupid prison cell. You know, and there's this expectation that the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to set them free from their earthly oppression, that he's going to rise up and be powerful. And and so the Jews are going to have their day to reign again. And this kingdom is going to be established on earth. Well, it is, but maybe not in the way that you think. But John's in his prison cell like, I'm still feeling oppressed. I'm still feeling dominated. He's here. I, I thought he was the one. Go ask him, is he the one or not? And when the men had come to him, they said, uh, John the Baptist has sent us to you, Jesus, saying, are you the one who is to come or, or shall we look for another? And it's crazy because John declared to the world, Jesus was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. 
John had all the confidence. Jesus was and is and was to come, right? And now the lonely nights in his cell, the loss of his own personal liberty, the discontentment he's experiencing day after day as he waits his release from the oppression, his unmet expectation that this Messiah is gonna set him free physically, literally he finds himself questioning, is this Jesus guy, is he really the guy? Is he really the guy? Because it sure don't seem like it to me. And so his disciples go, they asked Jesus the question. And then in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard, because he knows that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. He knows that John is, this is gonna affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. So he does that. He says, so uh, tell him that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And, and so what Jesus, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. Go tell John, go tell John, it's all happening. Just like the text said it would, go tell him. But then Jesus says this, and this is what I wanted the whole message to be on. I've been waiting to get to this point. I couldn't wait to get to this point. And blessed, then Jesus says, and make sure you tell him this too. He didn't say that, but I added it. He said, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus knows John is discouraged, discontent, dying to be released from prison. John has basically said, Jesus, I thought you were the God. I thought you were going to take care of this. I thought, I thought you had all the power to change my situation. Yet here I am, Jesus. But Jesus reminds John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In essence, in the, in the middle of John insinuating, are you just going to leave me here? Jesus encourages John, don't be so offended by what you don't see me do that you miss what I am doing. What's freedom from a prison cell when Jesus is making freedom, when he's making way for freedom for all of eternity, right? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Sometimes we, could it be that our offense of what we haven't seen God maybe do causes us to maybe separate or lose trust? That's what that word, don't be offended. Don't lose trust with me. Blessed is the one who doesn't lose trust with me. If we'll leave our heart unoffended, not only by others, by, by our relationship with God, blessed is the, there, there's, there's blessing we're gonna walk into, right? There, that's a call to faithfulness. We're, we're gonna experience God in the greatest ways if we avoid this living with this offended heart. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And I just wonder if some of us had carried this offense towards God for what he hasn't done that it's hindered our ability to fully receive and celebrate what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do. Amen? And this is the, and this is the greatest news. John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's enough hope right there that regardless of what we endure, faith in Christ is enough. It's a firm foundation. That's significant enough. Amen. I'm not saying don't believe God for the breakthrough. Don't ask for it. Keep praying for the miracle. Keep seeking him. But if we don't see certain things manifest, I'm not going to be so offended in spirit that I, that I, that I lose trust with him. I'm going to remain faithful, eyes fixed on you. You've already done enough, Lord. That's going to carry me through. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Destiny Church, how to get connected or give online, visit destinychurch.me. Have a great week.